That music, again, is In the Hall of the Mountain King, from the Peregrine Suite by Edvard Grieg, performed by the Czech National Symphony Orchestra and published by Muse Open. This is Sam Biagetti of Historian Splaining. These lectures are on SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, Podbean, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. So this will be the long-prepared and long-awaited Vikings Part 2 into Distant Realms. And this lecture series on the Vikings is brought to you by the letter C. So in the 9th century, all around Western Europe, Monks and nuns would routinely wake up early in the morning, shuffle out of their cells, and into chapels or sometimes churches or cathedrals, where they would recite or sing complex daily liturgies of prayers and benedictions, sometimes adding in special prayers or songs for holy days or for the benefit of patrons who supported the church. One particular antiphony, or two-voice song, written for churches and abbeys dedicated to the French saints Vast and Medard, contained the following prayer. Summa pia gratia nostra conservando corpora et custodita, de gente fera normanica nos libera. Or in English, Most supreme and holy grace, protect our bodies and our loved ones, and deliver us, O Lord, from the savage race of the Northmen. This sort of prayer was not unique. Around the same time in the 830s, a monk in Ireland wrote a poem in the margins of his prayer book in which he praised stormy nights because these were the only times when the Vikings did not set out in their ships to raid. So very old texts like these from the 9th century confirm the common perception that still exists today. The perception of the Vikings as the terror of Europe, as more fearsome, ruthless, and destructive than any other race of pirates or marauders of the Middle Ages. Now this perception that has endured and evolved through the centuries is partly based on some exaggeration. Many documents from this time massively exaggerated the scale of Viking attacks, claiming fleets of hundreds of ships with tens of thousands of men, even in places and times when archaeology shows that that was impossible. And sometimes the destruction of internal and internecine wars in Christian Europe was blamed on the Vikings, even when they were only acting as mercenaries in the employ and drawn into other people's wars. A good example of this exaggeration and embellishment is the affair of the so-called Blood Eagle execution, which reportedly involved cutting the ribs away from the spine. So incising down across the victim's back, separating the ribs from the spine, pulling the rib cage apart. In some instances, this is said to be the reason for the term Blood Eagle, the ribs being spread apart like wings. In some versions, it's further claimed that the lungs would then be pulled out of the person's back while this person died. Modern depictions of this execution are often fantastically gruesome and macabre. In particular, in some versions, it's been claimed that the victim would still be alive and that the lungs, when removed, would flutter like birds' wings. In fact, this reference to the Blood Eagle is briefly described in two Norse sagas, which were recorded in the 1100s and 1200s. In both instances, it is reportedly used as a mode of revenge 
These references in these two sagas may or may not be factual. They may simply be literary invention. But they do not claim that the victim would still be alive. That would be totally medically and anatomically impossible. Simply cutting in this way into a person's back and breaking their rib cage would kill them immediately. So even if these references to the blood eagle are taken as real, it was surely not a method of torture or of execution, but rather it was a mode of mutilating a corpse of a person already dead in order to avenge some earlier insult or humiliation. And yet nonetheless, one sees references to this idea of the blood eagle repeatedly brought up over and over again, far beyond the scale of these two brief and very ambiguous references in these two sagas. And likewise, the notion of the Vikings as bloodthirsty, as constantly going berserk, killing, raping indiscriminately, these are almost certainly also exaggerations that have built up through the centuries. Why has there been this exaggeration? Well, for one thing, because the Vikings were heathens, and hence they provided politically convenient scapegoats upon which to blame the widespread violence and disorder of the early Middle Ages. And more specifically, these early documents, such as the Antiphony that I quoted earlier, and early accounts of the Vikings' activities were written almost entirely by churchmen. And for them, it was very easy, of course, to demonize the Vikings, since they were outside of the Christian fold. And truly, the most crucial factor that set the Vikings apart from other raiders and pirates in the Middle Ages was religious difference. And more specifically, the Vikings' willingness to attack religious targets, such as churches and monasteries, which were by that time the main repositories of the growing wealth of Europe. So religious difference is key to understanding why the Vikings were so feared and detested, but also why they were so impactful. So even if Viking brutality on certain points has been exaggerated or distorted, nevertheless it's clear that they were serious bad news, that they rained down carnage and destruction, across many different parts of Europe in the early Middle Ages, and also, furthermore, that they created new settlements and societies, building up much of the new transformed political map of Europe. So the Vikings, as I mentioned last time, had different faces. They had a warlike and bloodthirsty face, as well as a peaceable face, interested in settlement, in trade, in diplomacy. But in both respects, they experienced a profound, dramatic, almost overwhelming expansion from their homelands in Scandinavia throughout Europe in a fairly short time in the late 8th and 9th centuries. So the question, of course, that many people have addressed in many different ways through the years is why? What prompted this rapid outburst of expansion from Scandinavia? So a number of different possible explanations have been put forward through the years, beginning firstly with one that probably many of you have heard, which is a demographic explanation. The idea that the expansion stemmed from population pressure and resulting poverty and lack of land within Scandinavia. And this one actually goes all the way back to the Middle Ages itself. So for example, the cleric Dudo in Normandy 
around the year 1020, wrote about the onset of these Viking attacks, and he claimed that it stemmed from overpopulation. And he wrote, quote, These people who insolently abandoned themselves to excessive indulgence, live in outrageous union with many women, and there in shameless and unlawful intercourse breed innumerable progeny. Once they have grown up, the young quarrel violently with their fathers and grandfathers, or with each other, about property. And if they increase too greatly in number and cannot acquire sufficient land to live on, a large group is selected by the drawing of lots, according to ancient custom, who are driven away to foreign peoples and realms, so that they by fighting can gain themselves countries where they can live in continual peace. Now, This demographic explanation has been repeated and revised through the centuries right up to modern times, but it really does not hold up to scrutiny at all, especially in light of current archaeology. The Norse population, as I described last time, was small and spread out. It did not grow dramatically in the Viking Age. And in fact, the demographic forces were quite the opposite. There was a tremendous demand for labor, within Scandinavia, hence the market for slaves and the large number of captive people who were brought back into Scandinavia in order to do domestic and farm labor. So there was no demographic population push out of Scandinavia. A second explanation that's been advanced at times is economic. They were simply poor and they wanted more stuff. Well, this doesn't really hold up either. At least by the 8th century, Scandinavia was not particularly poor. There was a good deal of wealth in the countries of Norway, Sweden, and Denmark by no later than the mid-800s, and yet the raiding and colonizing continued. A third explanation is, you could say, cultural. The Scandinavians were bloodthirsty heathen barbarians, and hence violent activity flowed from their nature. Many churchmen claimed that these pagans were in fact controlled by demonic or diabolical forces. The implication then, of course, being that if they were converted to Christianity, the raiding and pillaging would stop. And this specific argument was advanced by many missionaries, such as Adam of Bremen. Now, this claim has at least some more element of truth to it. There were ideas and social forces at work in Norse society that encouraged raiding. And in fact, Christianization did change these social and economic conditions in a way that made raiding outmoded and disadvantageous. And it was Christian conversion that was the main force that led to the decline of the Viking raids. But it's more specific than just saying, of course, they were pagan. Many pagans could and did coexist peaceably, trading with Christians, but the Norse did not do so. It was the Vikings that chose over and over again for generations to raid and attack. Now, after the cultural explanation, there are political explanations, namely that they were pushed out of the Scandinavian kingdoms due to tyranny and oppression. Well, there is at least some truth to this in some specific situations. There are sagas and other pieces of literary evidence that say that early Norse settlers, for example, in Iceland, were Norwegians mainly coming from upper-class families who resisted the extension of royal authority and who set out to the West in order to settle new lands that they could control independently and away from royal power. But this political explanation cannot apply to many other situations. Many Vikings were happy to work together with the Norse kings, 
Some of them, in fact, were in the king's own band or lid, and some Viking commanders were, in fact, kings themselves. And for many of them, raiding helped to bolster their royal authority. It was a way of strengthening the bonds of fellowship and then further reinforcing central authority by distributing the loot, the treasure, from these raiding voyages. So ultimately, all of these various explanations fail. And the main reason why they fail is because they're going about the question in the wrong direction. It seems from the latest, most comprehensive evidence that the real reasons for the Viking expansion were not push reasons, but pull, which means the roots of this trend were not forces or problems within Scandinavia that pushed people out to raid and pillage. Rather, they were attractions that pulled them abroad. So from the latest evidence and scholarship, what are these conditions that induced the expansion out of Scandinavia? Well, there were social conditions. Scandinavia was a deeply martial society with a warrior elite. As I discussed last time, a current theory holds that Scandinavia had been militarized by the dramatic disruption of the 500s, where a climatic disruption, a series of crop failures and famines led to deprivation, instability, and fighting over resources. And when Scandinavian civilization reemerged later in the 600s, it was with this highly militarized elite with a martial ethos. And this included a desire for fame and glory gained on the battlefield, a celebration of fighting prowess and bravery, and also alongside that, a constant desire for more wealth, specifically gold and silver, which were building blocks of power through gift-giving. Now, Norse sources themselves continually say that their ventures abroad were about adventure and loot. And for instance, a small buried treasure hoard that has been found on the island of Senja in Norway includes in it a gold neck ring, which was carved with a verse, a Norse verse, saying, quote, We went to visit the Frisian lands, and it was we who split the spoils of war. And also found in that same hoard on Senja are two necklaces, one with cross ornaments, probably from Western Europe, and another with Asian-style pendants, which presumably had been gained through far-ranging trade or raiding. And that inscription on that gold neck ring really, it seems, encapsulates the mentality of the Vikings, that this was about the pride of adventure, of going out into far unknown lands, facing dangers, and coming back with treasure. Underlying that, of course, is the simple economic reality, the continual desire for silver, which not only represented wealth and power, but also was the easiest means of exchange. It could be made into small jewels or other decorative objects, such as finger rings, which were then durable and could be easily measured, weighed, and traded as a kind of currency. There also was the economic condition of increasing wealth in mainland Europe to the south due to political stabilization. There was an extensive, fairly strong Frankish Empire in the West, as well as the Byzantine Empire in the East, which acted as a kind of suzerain of most of Eastern Europe. This stabilization 
led to growing trade, pilgrimage, and concentration of wealth, especially in churches, monasteries, and abbeys, as well as in state treasuries. And alongside this gathering and concentration of wealth in church establishments, there also was the growth of large new market towns in many places such as Dorestad on the Rhine, several such as London, York, and Southampton in England, and others on the Baltic, especially in Poland and Latvia. All of these then, of course, made for easy, desirable targets for not only trade, but also raiding and pillaging. Thirdly, there were the technological conditions. Scandinavia was rich in iron. It was easy to gather and smelt iron in order to make steel weapons, as well as other tools and nails and rivets. And furthermore, the expansion of the Scandinavians by sea was made possible by the technologies of ships and sheep. So sheep allowed for a transportable resource, which allowed for survival in new outposts and faraway lands, as long as there was just some grass or scrubland on which to graze sheep. Sheep's wool also provided an easy, immediate trade item to open commerce, and also provided cloth from which to make sails to sail their ships. And the last really crucial technology of the Norsemen that made this expansion possible was shipbuilding. So Viking shipbuilders used the abundant timber around Scandinavia, including many curved trunks and boughs, which they could then shape and assemble into finely crafted ships. These ships were clinker built, meaning they were made of long, continuous, complete wood planks, which were then layered and riveted together with iron rivets and sealed with hair and other sealant materials. These seagoing warships had several important features, which have been examined and discovered over the last hundred years because several ships have been found preserved, some in burials, especially in Norway and Sweden, and others sunk at undersea sites in Denmark. And these ships were very long and narrow, making them fast-moving with the ability to break waves. They carry crews of about 40 to 70 people, and the gunwale or upper edge of the hull had a so-called shield batten, a sort of ledge on which fighters could hang their shields, thus creating a further band of defense and a kind of crenellation behind which fighters could hide while they shot arrows or swung weapons. These ships crucially had two different modes of propulsion, both a mast for sailing and oar ports through which the crew could row the ship. And there are several reasons why this was so important. The mast was removable. It could be sort of unbuckled from the deck and lowered. And so the, the crew could switch back and forth between propulsion by sail or by rowing. The sail allowed the ship to move fast, at least when there was wind, but they also could switch over to rowing for tight maneuvering. Also lowering the mast, not only taking down the sail, which is pretty standard on any sailing ship, being able to lower the mast allowed for longer invisibility when approaching an enemy or approaching the shore. If one wanted to quickly sneak attack and assault a town or a monastery on the shore, one could lower the mast and have at least a few more minutes of not being visible on the horizon before then showing up and making landing. And those few minutes could be critical in denying your prey the ability to assemble a defense. 
Lowering the mast also made it possible for the ships to pass underneath bridges on rivers as they quickly moved upriver to attack targets inland. So these ships quickly emerged as sort of the early medieval equivalent of the rocket ship or the aircraft carrier of modern times, the most advanced, most sophisticated military vessel of their age. A fourth reason, in addition to the social, the economic, the technological, a fourth condition that made the Viking expansion possible was religious. So, as I said, there was general peace and stability, at least in large areas of Europe, of mainland Europe, in the 8th and 9th centuries. And this peace was maintained in large part by the common acceptance of norms of the Christian world. And these included, importantly, a general respect for the inviolability of holy sites with holy relics, and also of abbeys and monasteries that housed these relics. There was also a general, not perfectly reliable, but a general taboo against attacking churchmen and women like monks and nuns. And for these reasons, monks, nuns, and monasteries could be unarmed and could site themselves in places like islands on the coast or river mouths that were otherwise fairly vulnerable to attack by sea, but they felt safe because there was this agreed-upon taboo against attacking them. Well, the Norse, of course, didn't care about these taboos. These strictures against raiding and attacking, especially at Christian sites, simply didn't make any difference to them. And hence, the great concentration of wealth around these religious holy sites simply created easy targets, easy sitting ducks for pagan people to come and attack. So arguably, with this context in mind, the Viking raids appear almost, you could say, inevitable as a, a almost unavoidable outcome of this juxtaposition of a large, growing, relatively prosperous Christendom right next to this very warlike pagan region in Scandinavia. And the final reasons are simply straightforward military conditions. This peace on the mainland, especially in the Carolingian Empire, was maintained mainly by cavalry forces, which could gather and move quickly across the terrain. But these cavalry forces were useful mainly against big land invasions, such as the attempted Moorish invasion of France in the early 700s. They were not so useful for countering unexpected fast-moving sea attacks. And from the Norse point of view, they had the necessary fighting skills and prowess, as well as the materials, the wood and iron for ships and weapons. So basically, in sum, looking at all of these conditions together, we can say that why the Vikings set out and raided and colonized through Europe is because they could. They stood to benefit, and there was nothing holding them back, religiously, technologically, ideologically. And this fact that the Vikings raided because they could is illustrated, I think, by the basic phases through which the Viking Age developed and unfolded. So one can outline more or less four basic phases of this Viking expansion. And it began firstly with intra-Norse feuding and raiding, which probably started in the 600s, with small bands and tribes going to war with one another and taking loot and captives. The second phase was raiding into the east, which started in the early 700s into the Baltic lands and Eastern Europe, 
Then thirdly, raiding into the West, in Western Europe, which started in the 790s. And then fourthly, the wave of colonization and settlement, which started in the mid-800s. So to begin with the first phase, the intra-Norse fighting, it seems that this began in the 600s and then quickly escalated. It probably stemmed from the militarization of Norse societies after the disaster of the 500s, which I talked about before. And it may have used various sort of diplomatic rationales, such as diplomatic insults or border or territorial disputes. But these were basically used as pretexts for an ongoing cycle of raiding and pillaging, which more and more became a sort of regular central activity of Norse life. These raids and sackings were usually launched by a local leader, such as a chieftain or a jarl, accompanied by their lid, or armed brotherhood. The major desired item, again, from early on, it seems, was silver, which was usable decoratively, artistically, and also as a medium of exchange. In the late 600s, it seems that some Viking voyagers started to venture abroad beyond Scandinavia. And this started, it seems, mainly because they were hired as mercenaries to fight in other people's wars around the wider region of northern and northeastern Europe. And so they learned further martial organizing and tactics that could be effective against non-Norse opponents, such as sneak attacks. In the early 700s, they began, you could say, to go into business on their own and started setting out attacking and raiding richer lands of their own accord, mainly due to their innovations in seafaring. And these sort of independent raids moving out from Scandinavia to other lands relied on some wider organizational base. They might assemble large forces composed of several lids and build up large fleets of as many as 12 or 13 ships sailing together in convoy. And the first targets of this new exploration, trading, and raiding and pillaging, the main targets were in the east. And it seems that the first to venture out on these voyages were mainly Swedes, especially from the island of Gotland in the Baltic, near the shore of mainland Sweden. They would set out on voyages of initially trading by ship, starting probably around 700. They would land on the eastern and southern shores of the Baltic, and then also sail up the major rivers like the Vistula and the Oder into the interior of Eastern Europe. And these countries were inhabited by a complicated patchwork of Slavic, Baltic, Finnic, and some Turco-Mongolic tribes. And as they would find peoples with whom to, to trade or from whom to demand tribute or loot, they would gradually sail upriver until they found that it was unnavigable, and then sometimes would drag their ships or boats overland to another river and continue onward, further eastward and southward. Now, as they did so, when possible, they would gain permission for safe passage from local rulers. But if this permission to travel or trade was refused, or if good trading terms could not be reached, the Norse would simply turn to strong-arming, demanding that markets be opened, or just demanding tribute by force. And it seems that several Baltic tribes along the eastern shores of the Baltic, were paying tribute to the kings of Birka, that main commercial town in Sweden, by no later than 850. If the strong arming and demands for tribute was resisted, of course, the Norse could then easily turn to simply plundering. And hence, trade in this way could easily shade over gradually into raiding and pillaging. 
And it seems this created a cycle where raids could then provide goods and also captives that the Vikings could then take along their way for further trading. And this sort of cycle, it seems, became normal and practically routine over the course of the 800s. So these eastern trading and raiding ventures set certain precedents. For one thing, expeditionary forces were usually led, as I said, by a regional leader such as a chieftain, a jarl, or sometimes even a king, and a small group confederated around them. They developed techniques to attack and retreat rapidly, and they were interested in, in this way, seizing people and silver, not so much establishing permanent political control or rulership, which was fairly impossible if they wanted to go back eventually to their homelands in Scandinavia. And these trading and raiding ventures operated fairly independently because they were going into distant lands far away from Sweden. They were basically outside of the control or direction of the kings and tribal elders back at home. Now also as part of this cycle of moving further and deeper into Eastern Europe, some Vikings also created long-lasting trading outposts or villages along the Baltic seashore and also along the rivers. It seems that there were Norse people living at the trading town of Staraya Ladoga in what's now Russia, just east of what's today St. Petersburg, by no later than 750. And then other trading towns, it seems, sprung up along rivers as permanent points of contact between these Viking travelers and local peoples in the regions. One of these new towns that sprung up was Kiev or Kiev on the Dnieper River in what's now Ukraine. And it seems to have existed by the mid 800s and it served as a focal point of trade and diplomacy around which eventually a kingdom emerged called the Kievan Rus. And later others similarly sprang up further east around what was later known as Novgorod and finally Moscow in present day Russia. The main object of this exploration, as I said, was mainly silver, which was flowing at this time northward from the Islamic Empire in the Middle East to the Byzantine Empire and from there into Eastern Europe. So the Vikings, it seems, wanted to move closer and closer to the best sources of this silver supply whether it was silver objects or, in many cases, silver coins minted in the Islamic Caliphate. And a major destination that many of them aimed for was the Khazar Kingdom on the Volga in what's today Russia. Eventually, some of them were able to move southward, reaching the Black Sea, and some, it seems, traveled all the way to Constantinople, and in later years, some all the way to the capital of the Caliphate in Baghdad. Some of them went as traders or to work for hire as mercenaries. And one of them who went to Constantinople, it seems, actually scratched his name, Halfdan, in runes in the gallery of Hagia Sophia, the Greek Orthodox cathedral in Constantinople. And with time, some of them also went as raiders and tried to actually confront the Byzantine imperial forces in order to raid and pillage. And for instance, in the year 860, it seems that a Viking group actually tried to seize the capital of Constantinople while the emperor was away, but they failed. Now, early on, the Vikings, it seems, traded certain items that they could bring with them, such as iron weapons like swords in order to trade for silver. But over time, more and more slave trading became the big crucial trade that the Vikings managed through Eastern Europe to Constantinople. So human captives was the main valuable item 
that Vikings were able to procure that was high value enough to trade for silver. The captives that they traded, it seems, were mostly women, and they were desired for domestic work as well as for sexual exploitation. And the Islamic emissary Ibn Fadlan, whom I quoted last time, describes in his accounts of his visits to a Viking village on the Volga, how small numbers, sometimes individual slaves, were traded sporadically, one at a time or in small groups, at kind of semi-permanent trading posts or outposts. There were no permanent slave markets, like one might see in a great city like Baghdad or Constantinople. But there was this kind of constant trade moving up and down the rivers between the Baltic and the Black Sea. These slave captives were demanded by all sorts of people all around Eastern Europe, but most especially they were desired in the tremendous markets of the Islamic Caliphate. So the demand for labor and for slaves in the Islamic Middle East was tremendous, and it fueled multiple slave trades all around Eurasia and Eastern Africa. The Vikings were just one small part of this network of trading in humans, and they managed this traffic for a time in Eastern Europe. So as I mentioned before, some Norsemen actually traveled all the way to the caliphate itself, whether as traders, merchants, or mercenaries. And the Islamic Empire encountered many different foreign peoples and visitors who moved in and out of their borders and in and out of their cities. And they had to sort through various different names and terms and categories for these foreigners. And these Scandinavians were just one stream among many others. And it seems that the people of the caliphate called these Scandinavians Rus. And we spell that today simply R-U-S. The origin of this term is unknown but it seems to have referred broadly to Northern Europeans whom they encountered, particularly Norsemen. And later, this term Rus came to be applied most specifically to the Norse colonies and chiefdoms that formed in Eastern Europe. And this is the root of the name Russia and Russian that we still use today. So the Vikings were really very influential in creating a kind of consolidated network of trade and civilization in the landmass of Eastern Europe. But this Viking voyaging, trading, and raiding declined in the 1000s, much as it did in Western Europe at the same time. And there are several reasons for this, but probably firstly, it was due to the growth in Slavic power, that more and more the Norse had to deal with Slavic chiefdoms and kingdoms in a careful and more diplomatic way. There was an exchange of migrants in both directions. Many Norse emissaries and merchants went into Scandinavia. There were diplomatic marriages between Norse and Slavic rulers. And there was more of, you could say, a kind of equal exchange of knowledge in these later years, where, for example, the Scandinavians learned bridge-building techniques from the Slavs, whereas the Slavic people learned shipbuilding from the Norsemen, and hence more and more were able to match them, both on land and at sea. So by 1050, the tide was turning. The Slavs were starting to cross westward and raid into Denmark. So this was now, you could say, you know, the Slavs were having a little revenge. Also, secondly, the decline of Viking raiding and colonization in the East was also due to Christianization and the discouragement of warring and raiding among Christians. 
So it seems that the earliest phase of the Viking expansion moved into the east, as I said, in pursuit of silver. But there were periodically disruptions in this flow of silver coin and silver objects from the Islamic Empire to Byzantium and Eastern Europe. There were occasional wars or natural disasters or diplomatic feuds that would cut off that silver trade. And it seems that's the most likely reason why not long after some Vikings in Denmark and Norway started to turn the other way and instead raid and pillage to the West. So Viking attacks in the West started roughly around the year 780, and eventually, over time, the West would actually overtake the East as the main Viking target. There had been comparative growth and prosperity in the West as compared to earlier centuries, especially with the stabilization under the Carolingian dynasty, and also with the expansion and further penetration of Christianity all around Western Europe. This, as I said, allowed for a new accumulation of wealth at church sites, sites of pilgrimage, and of donations. It's also likely that there was a further political reason why the Vikings turned west. And that's because they were drawn into war and politics in the west by Charlemagne himself. So Charlemagne had a long mission to defeat and forcibly Christianize the Saxons in what's now Germany. And because he had this long feud with the Saxons, he did a diplomatic maneuver that was not entirely unknown, which was to jump past the Saxons to the next tribe or national group beyond them and offer a possible favorable alliance, including offering money and arms. So it's a, it's a classic, you know, enemy of my enemy is my friend logic. And it seems the Romans also would do this. They would reach out to more distant so-called barbarian peoples and give them money and arms in order to cause trouble for the barbarians right on their borders. So it seems that Charlemagne sent emissaries and opened up communication specifically with the Danes, but the Danes were very wary. They refused to be assimilated into Christian civilization, but they could use this new political and geographic knowledge from their communications with Charlemagne's empire, the money and the weapons, in order to then turn around and start raiding to the west. And the earliest, at least the earliest written evidence about these raids on the West are from Great Britain. For example, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records that during the reign of King Britric of Wessex in the southwestern corner of Britain, in probably the later months of the year 787, there was a sort of first encounter between Vikings and the inhabitants of Britain. And reportedly, three ships appeared on the coast of Wessex with Danish men. The king's reeve, or local caretaker, supposed that they were merchants and that they had come to trade. And so he rode out on horseback in order to meet them and summon them to the king's palace. But they simply killed him. And this was a sign of things to come. They were not here to trade. So small coastal attacks and raids around England continued into the early 790s. It seems that the king of Mercia, which is mostly in the interior of West Central England, had to organize and coordinate the defense of the coast of Kent in the southeast in order to counter so-called, quote, seagoing pagans with roaming ships. 
And as many of you probably know, this early wave of attacks then really culminated in the year 793 with the famous attack on Lindisfarne, most likely by raiders from Norway. So Lindisfarne was a large, rich, prestigious monastery located on Holy Island, a small rocky island on the northwestern coast of Britain within the kingdom of Northumbria, or today's Yorkshire. Lindisfarne housed very important holy relics, namely the remains of St. Cuthbert, who was widely revered in northern England and was associated with miracles. The monastery was a center of great learning and art. It produced the famous Lindisfarne Gospels, among the most elaborate and impressive illuminated books from the Middle Ages. Holy Island was considered to be a safe place. It was separated from the mainland by a wide, shallow channel, which was very difficult to cross, either on foot or by boat. It couldn't be attacked by a land army, and boats might approach it up the coast, but they couldn't easily land, and there would be a great deal of warning, allowing people to either rally defenses or flee before any troops were actually able to land near the island. But nonetheless, according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, there was something wrong that people could sense or perceive in the year 793. And the Chronicle records, quote, In this year dire portents appeared over Northumbria and sorely frightened the people. They consisted of immense whirlwinds and flashes of lightning and fiery dragons were seen flying in the air. A great famine immediately followed those signs. And a little after that, in the same year, on June 8th, the ravages of heathen men miserably destroyed God's church on Lindisfarne with plunder and slaughter. Shortly after, it seems that news of this attack reached Alcuin of York, who was an English cleric living on the continent in charge of Charlemagne's court school at Aachen. And he wrote a letter back to the rulers of Northumbria, warning that the attack was a kind of divine punishment. And he wrote to King Ethelred, quote, Lo, it is nearly 350 years that we and our fathers have inhabited this most lovely land, and never before has such terror appeared in Britain as we have now suffered from a pagan race. Nor was it thought that such an inroad from the sea could be made. Behold, the church of St. Cuthbert, spattered with the blood of the priests of God, despoiled of all its ornaments, a place more venerable than all in Britain, is given as a prey to pagan peoples. End quote. So Alcuin of York's letter, unlike the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, comes from very close to the time of this attack. But it's also important to remember, although he has these vivid details like the spattering blood, he was not an eyewitness. He was not there. And he may have been embellishing. He was basing his imaginary description of this attack on what he had heard. And he further wrote that, quote, the, that the Vikings, quote, trampled on the bodies of saints in the temple of God like dung in the street, end quote. So because of writings like this by Alcuin, the attack on Lindisfarne became infamous, not only as an act of violence or destruction, but specifically as a pagan desecration of a Christian site and an example of both the brutality and the blasphemy of these heathen attackers. And this was used for centuries as a sort of touchstone, a set piece of this essential conflict between Christianity and paganism. And for example, a later 12th century chronicle called the Historia Regum, or History of Kings, 
said that the Vikings, quote, laid everything waste with grievous plundering, trampled the holy places with polluted steps, dug up the altars, and seized all the treasures of the holy church, end quote. So these accounts of the attack on Lindisfarne are enduring because of their vividness, the sense of drama, and the lament here, of course, is not just for violence or loss of life. It's for desecration. And in effect, they make the monks themselves into martyrs, and also they make Lindisfarne itself into a kind of martyr place that had suffered for the sake of Christianity. But none of these accounts are direct eyewitness accounts from the time, and we really don't know in any detail exactly what happened. The most important an impactful aspect of the attack was not only the fright that it caused to Christians, but also probably the easy wealth that these Norwegian raiders were able to take back with them to Scandinavia, and the stories that they were able to tell of the masses of silver and gold that were simply being left unguarded by passive unarmed monks. So this fueled further waves of raiding to the West. This was really the initiation, not of the Viking era as such, which had already begun in the East, but you could say it was the beginning of the high raiding period in the West. Now, as for Lindisfarne itself, it seems that the monastery wasn't totally abandoned. The remains of St. Cuthbert were taken away to safer places inland within Britain, and apparently there was some resettlement and rebuilding on Holy Island. Interestingly, a gravestone marker has been found on the island dating from the 800s, maybe a few decades or so after the raid, and it shows what seem to be berserkers, Viking warriors swinging swords and axes over their heads. And this gravestone might have been carved by a monk in a small party that remained in Holy Island, and perhaps the artist was a witness or a survivor of the attack, or maybe the deceased who was being memorialized was a witness or survivor of the attack who described what he had seen. But regardless, the attack on Lindisfarne is still today the definitive view of the Vikings, the most famous attack. And one of the reasons that's true is because it took place in England. And England later, of course, rose to be a major world power. The English language has been spread to countries all around the world. So it is sort of enshrined as this most iconic moment of the Viking Age. But it was not unique. It may not have been the most destructive attack. It probably was not. And it was significant, again, in that it encouraged further attacks. It enticed more Viking voyages to the West. In the following year, in 794, another monastery in Northumbria was plundered, possibly the monastery at Tynemouth. The year after that, in 795, Vikings sailed all the way around the northern end of Scotland and began to raid and invade in the Hebrides Islands along the western coast of Scotland. They sacked the even more ancient Christian abbey at Iona. Iona was then sacked again repeatedly in 802 and 806. And finally, the abbey had to be abandoned and the monastery moved to Kells in Ireland in 807. But the Vikings, it seems, followed them there, and shortly after that, Viking raids began in Ireland, before then turning southward to the continent. In 835, there was the first large attack on southern England, rather than Northumbria. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in that year, quote, heathen men ravaged Sheppey, 
And in the later 830s, there were repeated raids on London and Southampton, and a major escalation at the same time of attacks on Ireland. Now, meanwhile, what was going on in mainland Europe, in the Frankish Empire? In 808, it seems that there were escalating tensions between Charlemagne's Frankish Empire on the one hand and Denmark under a ruler named Goodfred on the other. And these tensions led to a lengthening and strengthening then of the Danavirka along the Isthmus connecting Denmark to Germany. In 810, the Danes began, it seems, to go on the offensive and they launched the first Norse attack on the west. So whereas it seems that the early raids on Britain were mainly by Norwegians. On the mainland, they were coming from nearby Denmark. And these first raids in 810 were on the coast of Frisia, the low-lying coastal area of the Netherlands, within the bounds of the Frankish Empire. The Vikings plundered what they could along this coast and then demanded a further 100 pounds of silver as tribute in return for going back to Denmark. So Charlemagne then began building coastal defenses in order to try to repel further attacks. In 814, the Danish king Gudfred was assassinated, and his successor moved to make peace with the Carolingian Empire. But in 820, nonetheless, there was the first freelance, you could say piratical, attack on the Frankish Empire. So in that year, according to the Frankish annals, a fleet of 13 ships tried to attack Flanders, and then began to raid around the mouth of the Seine, but they were quickly repulsed. Finally, they moved further to the southwest and landed in Aquitaine, in the southwestern part of France, where they were able to plunder and then return back to Denmark. Six years later, in 826, the empire first began trying to use Vikings as a defense against other Vikings. So there was a sort of political military maneuver here, of fighting fire with fire. So they engaged in in a strategy of granting fiefdoms of land near the mouths of rivers to certain Norse chieftains if they in turn would help to fortify and defend those coastal positions against other Viking raiders. And it seems this arrangement began first with a grant of land to a chieftain named Harold Clack in the country of Rustringen on the river Weser on the border between Saxony and Frisia in what's now Germany. In 833, the Frankish Empire broke up and fell into civil war between the Emperor Louis the Pious and his three sons. And so other Danish Vikings took advantage and began attacking and repeatedly sacked the town of Dorastad, which was sacked and raided no fewer than four times between 834 and 837. One of the emperor's three sons, Lothar, then made an alliance with the chieftain Harold Clack. And after Emperor Louis died in 840, Lothar gave Harold Clack control of Valkyrin, a valuable province at the mouth of the Rhine River. But this did not stop the Viking attacks. They kept coming. And they were mostly independent parties setting out from Denmark as well as some Swedish. So now you have Swedes who are seeing greater opportunities to the west even than to the east. And they set out with mainly small, mobile fleets of 10 to 12 ships, carrying around 400 men. And they sometimes engaged in naval battles. But these naval battles were fairly simple and used primitive tactics as compared to the raids on land. 
they would simply basically rope their ships together into a line and charge at the enemies, firing arrows and stone missiles, then try to ram enemy boats and board them to fight hand-to-hand. In 841, Vikings sailed into the Seine River and plundered the town of Rouen, followed the following year by a raid on the trading town of Quentovic, further to the south in France. The burden of this violence and plunder fell most directly on the towns and the monasteries, which were the direct targets. But the majority of peasants, the country people in their various manors and villages, they suffered as well, if more indirectly, from occasional small raids and also more so from high taxes that were levied to pay these continual tributes and bribes to try to turn the Vikings away. In 843, the Frankish Empire finally formally split into three separate kingdoms. Each of these three kingdoms then tried desperately to fortify their coasts in order to divert the Viking attacks away to one of the other kingdoms. But it was not, it seems, that effective. The Viking raids were now practically unstoppable, coming every year. On June 24th of 843, Vikings attacked Nantes on the west coast of France, taking advantage of the fairs and markets that were held there for the festival of St. John the Baptist. So the Viking raiders are now, they have longer contact, they know more about the habits, the social geography. That winter, Vikings overwintered, it seems, for the first time on the mainland of the continent. They seized the island of Noirmoutier at the mouth of the Loire River. They expelled most or all of the monks from the monastery there, and they used the island as a base for further raiding, beginning a shift, it seems, towards more long-term or even permanent colonization on land. In 844, a large fleet set out from Noirmoutier southward to Iberia, and they were repelled in northern Spain, which is a rugged mountainous coastline. But they then sailed on and sacked Lisbon and Cadiz in Moorish territory, and arguably they pushed their luck by sailing all the way upriver to Seville, where a Moorish army intercepted and defeated them, and they had to retreat back to their base on the Loire. Now, no archaeological trace has been found of these early Viking raids on Spain, but remains of the common house mouse, and specifically a breed of this mouse from northern Europe with specific genetic traits, have recently been found in the island of Madeira in the North Atlantic beyond Spain. And these particular genetic markers actually link these mice back to Denmark. So you could say there's now archaeological evidence attesting that some Viking raiders went all the way out beyond Spain, close to North Africa, and landed on these islands in the Atlantic. The following year, in 845, a party of Viking raiders went up the Seine to Paris. According to Norse sagas, this raiding party was led by a charismatic leader, Ragnar, who may or may not have been a real historical personage, but a lot of the most daring voyages and attacks of this high raiding period are traditionally attributed to Ragnar Lothbrok. And according to chronicles and sagas, they attacked and sacked the city on Easter Sunday. Again, much like Vikings had raided Nantes on St. John the Baptist Day. The king, Charles the Bald, agreed to pay 7,000 pounds of silver to this raiding party for them to go away. On their return voyage, it seems, back to Scandinavia, an epidemic broke out on the fleet. Many of the Vikings died. Further epidemics broke out back in Scandinavia as well, with further deaths. 
So although they had been having this sort of bonanza of new wealth and power from these raids, eventually the exposure to new diseases came back to hit them. Similarly, around the same time, King Horik of Denmark sent a party to sack Hamburg in Germany, but shortly thereafter, diseases devastated his country as well. And it seems Horik suspected that this was a judgment of the gods, or maybe of the Christian god, and hence he offered to release all the Christian prisoners and to return the loot from this raid on Hamburg. In 847, the three Frankish kingdoms that had come out of the breakup of the empire agreed to cooperate in order to send an, a joint embassy to Horik of Denmark and urge him to suppress the raiding. But ultimately, he rebuffed them, and intermittent raids on the west continued with some small abeyance in the 850s. In 859, two chieftains launched a massive fleet of 62 ships, leaving from the mouth of the Loire, and they sailed south, raiding into Spain and North Africa, rounded the peninsula into the Mediterranean, raided the coast of southern France and northern Italy, they looted the city of Pisa in Tuscany, and they made winter camp on the Rhone River and raided far inland into France. Altogether, this expedition went on for three years. And again, like the attack on Lindisfarne, it caused massive shockwaves through the Mediterranean. Nonetheless, the raiding party lost most of its loot on the way back in storms and other disasters, and ultimately, ultimately, it seems only 20 of the 62 ships ultimately made it back to their base. And the news of this voyage deep into the Mediterranean, it seems, led to something of an arms race between the sea and land powers. So in 861, Charles the Bald of France again engaged in this strategy of trying to pay off some Vikings in order to fight other Vikings, and he further asked these paid allies to take baptism and join Christian civilization. And this worked, but only very briefly. Heavy raiding started up again, and it seems the height of devastation was in the 860s. And one monk named Ermentarius, who returned to the monastery at Noirmoutier, wrote, quote, The number of ships grows. The endless stream of Vikings never ceases to increase. Everywhere the Christians are victims of massacres, burnings, plunderings. The Vikings conquer all in their path, and no one resists them. They seize Bordeaux, Périgeux, Limoges, Angoulême, and Toulouse. Angers, Tours, and Orléans are annihilated, and an innumerable fleet sails up the Seine, and the evil grows in the whole region. Rouen is laid waste, plundered, and burned. Paris, Beauvais, and Meaux taken. Milan's strong fortress leveled to the ground. Chartres occupied. Evreux and Bayeux plundered, and every town besieged. So again, this may be somewhat overstated. It's not totally clear that these towns he names were annihilated. And it was not true that no one stood in their path. There was resistance and there were setbacks for the Vikings. But the destruction and loss was catastrophic. And it did lead many people, again, including churchmen, to suspect that these Norse attackers were sort of harbingers of the apocalypse and that they were living in the end times. And these elaborate alarmist descriptions were written 
probably in large part in order to sound an alarm and call for a response from the the powers that ought to be protecting Western Europe. And some leaders did respond. So King Charles of France ordered the creation of more and better fortresses, the enhancement of town walls, and most importantly, the building of low, strong, fortified bridges, which could serve to block Viking fleets and also create a base from which to attack these boats from above. These defenses, it seems, were fairly effective. And after a few years, there were not many soft targets left for the Vikings to go after. And many Viking leaders, it seems, were forced into deals where they could get permission to colonize, settle, and trade at the mouths of rivers if they agreed to guard against further raids by others and if they agreed to accept Christianity. The biggest of these grants, it seems, was a massive tract of land in Frisia that was granted to the Danish king Rurik. And Frisia under Rurik, it seems, became a sort of base for Norse chieftains and princes in exile. So if there were fights or feuds over the throne in Norse kingdoms, the claimants could go permanently or temporarily to this sort of early Norse colony in Frisia. And this arrangement was pretty effective at least until 877, when Charles the Bald died. And the kingdom, this western kingdom that we call France, fell into feuding. And more Viking raiders then opportunistically rushed in. The raiders attacked the coasts and went up the Rhine, sacked the cities of Cologne and Trier. They obtained large payoffs of gold and silver. In the 880s, Rurik's successor in Frisia, who was named Goodfred, accepted a closer alliance and Christian baptism. But he demanded more land. He his target now was not tribute or silver, but was more territory further inland. But he was refused by the French crown. And this failure of Goodfred to obtain more land, more territory beyond Frisia, may be seen as sort of the beginning of the end, where Vikings were now turning away from raiding. So Goodfred himself died in 885. And then shortly after, just a number of months later, maybe because of the breakdown of this cooperative alliance between Goodfred and France, the Viking raids escalated again. And there was, you could say, a dramatic culmination in the siege of Paris in 885 to 86. So in November 885, a huge Viking fleet of several hundred ships and thousands of warriors sailed up the Seine and arrived at the growing town of Paris, and they demanded exorbitant tributes. Now, this in itself was not totally unprecedented. Vikings had actually sacked Paris several times before and had been bribed to leave and move on to somewhere else. But by 885, the town had now been fortified more effectively. It had built higher town walls, and it had built bridges across the Seine to stop and counter the advance of ships. So Count Odo of Paris, who was responsible for the security of the city, refused to pay up, despite being massively outnumbered, with tens of thousands of Viking warriors on their fleet and only a few hundred defenders of the city. But nonetheless, he refused to pay, and so the Vikings laid siege to the city for several months, through the winter into 886, and they twice attempted to assault the walls, but they were unable to breach them and gain entry into the city. 
So over the course of months, some Vikings lost interest, broke away, and started to raid downriver, closer to the mouth of the Seine. Finally, in October 886, after almost a year of siege and standoff, King Charles the Fat finally arrived with his army. But what happened then? Well, instead of attacking the remaining Viking besiegers, instead he paid them off to leave and to go upriver and southward to Burgundy and to attack and raid Burgundy, which was currently in a state of rebellion against the king. So this final deal with the Vikings was very unpopular. And not surprisingly, when King Charles the Fat died a few years later, his dynasty was ended, and instead Odo, the Count of Paris, was proclaimed as the king to replace him. Now, arguably, this climactic siege of Paris in 885-86 can be seen as sort of the last gasp of Viking raiding. Now, this does not mean that Viking attacks and raids stopped. They did continue and flare up again periodically through the 900s. But it was arguably the end of the high raiding period, which was basically the early and mid-800s. And already by the time of this siege of Paris, the focus and the main goal of the Vikings, it seems, had already shifted. And now loot and tribute were not necessarily the main target. More and more the focus of day-to-day, year-to-year Viking activities was gaining land. So this, I would say, is the last major phase of the Viking Age, where the goal is to claim, settle, and colonize land. And this shift, it seems, started right in the midst of the Viking period, in the 840s and 50s. So there was a shift away from small fleets and single ships making surprise attacks, instead towards larger, coordinated forces that could be assembled and directed to seize and colonize territories. Their aim more and more was at settling civilians, including women and children, in order to transplant whole societies. And this is another important point that really distinguishes the Vikings historically from pirates, in quotation marks. So pirates, as we customarily understand them, they are opportunistic like Viking raiders, But apart from very small, limited experiments like on Tortuga in the West Indies, which was colonized by the so-called Brotherhood of the Coast, pirates are not interested in claiming and colonizing territory. And even Tortuga under the Brotherhood of the Coast was really a male society of male transplants and recruits. It was not a permanent society of families and civilian life. But the Vikings, for whatever reason, and it's very hard to pin down, I do not have an easy explanation. The Vikings more and more turned towards this idea, starting in the 840s. And you can see some early stages of this transition, for one thing, in France. In 845, a Viking group was allowed to settle peacefully and permanently in Aquitaine, the very fertile province in southwestern France. In 850, King Charles the Bald was concerned about the possibility of attack by his brother Lothar, and so he made a bargain with a certain Viking raider group, allowing them to take control of land around the mouth of the Seine. In 858, Norsemen created a permanent base at Wasse, on the Seine further upriver, south of the town of Rouen. And by this time, you could say the main aim of most Vikings was still raiding, and land was still secondary. 
but there was clearly a shift of focus. And interestingly, it seems that the same sort of process may have happened at the same time in the East. Although we don't have as much evidence, either archaeological or textual, the mid 800s it seems was the time when these Rus kingdoms, led by sort of hybrid Viking Slavic elite cadres, formed. And the process by which this happened is not certain, but according to the so-called primary chronicle of Russia, by the year 859, the Rus, meaning Norsemen from Sweden. Had subjugated four Baltic and Slavic tribes and were collecting tribute from them. A few years later, in 862, these tribes rebelled and expelled the Rus, but then they quickly fell into feuding and disorder among themselves. And so, shortly after, they asked three Norse brothers to come back into Eastern Europe and to take up rulership in three trading towns and impose law and peace there. Now it's uncertain whether or not this is true. It might be a convenient fable that explains why the ruling dynasties in these villages were of Norse extraction rather than Slavic. But nonetheless, either way, it seems that around this time in the 860s, the village of Kiev on the Dnieper River rose to become a regional power, maybe because of continued migration and settlement. From Scandinavia, forming a sort of regional ruling class of largely Norse background. It's hard to say exactly how many might have gone or where they went with any precision, because there was such rapid integration and assimilation of these Norse newcomers into this rising Rus kingdom around Kiev. Norse migrants adopted Slavic language and customs. But also certain Norse customs, such as the wearing of oval brooches and the depositing of brooches in grave goods, especially in the graves of women, and also the adoption of Norse words from Old Norse into Slavic languages, like early Russian and Ukrainian. These show that there was some migration and there was interpenetration of Norse and Slavs. Also, a few rune stones with Norse runic inscriptions have been found around Eastern Europe. One of them as far south as the shore of the Black Sea. And again, the creation of the of this growing Norse Commonwealth in Eastern Europe might then represent the same sort of process where. Vikings were turning away from simply raiding and pillaging, and more towards creation of permanent, settled colonial societies in Europe. In the early 900s, the Kievan Rus Kingdom made multiple trade and diplomatic treaties with the Byzantine Empire, so they were now a significant power on the scene. And later, in 988, the King Vladimir adopted Orthodox Christianity, so basically the style of Christianity centered at Constantinople. And Kievan Rus became a significant and close Byzantine ally. So again, the details of this transformation are mysterious, but it seems that the formation of these first Rus commonwealths and kingdoms was probably the result of a similar shift towards interest in land and permanent settlement. Now, thirdly, in England, the shift was the most dramatic and the most well recorded. So a Viking fleet overwintered in England for the first time in the winter of 850 to 51 on the coast of Kent. Just a few years after that, Vikings created a permanent base at Sheppey by the mouth of the Thames River. 
In 865, the Great Heathen Army, an organized force of about two to 3,000 men, landed in Britain and began seizing control of much of the island. They marched northward and westward through Britain, demanding subjugation, which probably involved accepting Norse overlordship and paying tribute. They did this first in East Anglia, on the eastern coast of Britain in 865. Then subsequently they took York, the main trading town in Northumbria, to the north, and they put a puppet king on the throne of Northumbria, and then afterwards plundered the great monastery at Whitby. They then marched southwestward into Britain and into the kingdom of Mercia in 867. A few years later, that army was followed by another one, the so-called Great Summer Army in 871. And under the force of these two invading armies, the kingdoms of East Anglia, Essex, and Northumbria all basically collapsed and their thrones were seized. So these were the first places where Vikings actually took control of an existing kingdom and claimed the title of king in a foreign realm. These armies gradually then broke up and raided westward through the island, and some of them, it seems, attempted and failed to overthrow the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Wessex on the far western end of the island in the 870s. So overall, by the 880s, it seems that the desire to control land was effectively eclipsing the activity of raiding and plundering. And again, I cannot say why this happened. Perhaps sources of wealth were simply being bled dry. There wasn't enough silver and gold left to take. Perhaps as more raiders spent their whole careers abroad, the desire to return back to Scandinavia with their loot diminished, and instead more and more of them were interested in staying and remaining permanently in these new countries. Also, perhaps with so much death from disease and exposure in these camps, more of them desired to settle down and to leave the tumultuous and dangerous raiding way of life. But regardless, we can see that the biggest hordes of treasure that were brought back to Scandinavia were from the 860s, and that arguably was the peak of the raiding era, and there are much less than from later, and it seems that raiding after that point declined, and more and more the Vikings were choosing to remain and colonize. In 885, the ruler Goodfred that I mentioned before, he demanded more land, specifically in his words, for wine. So he wanted wine-growing regions, which may have been simply a proxy for saying he wanted better and more fertile land for agriculture and long-term prosperity. But as I said, he failed, and others after him more and more were able to succeed in this attempt to gain more territory. After 885, also fortress building continued, and so land-based forces were more and more able to halt the attacks of Vikings, and there were several significant defeats in the 890s, in France in 890, in Germany in 891, and in England in 896, when King Alfred of Wessex was able to prevent Vikings from landing and gaining a foothold on the western shore of Britain. So as a result, even the Vikings who may have still wanted to continue the raids, they had to retreat and retrench after 900, and they had to transform their tactics 
regardless of whether they wanted to or not. For example, in northwestern France, around the Seine and the Loire, they had to withdraw back into their core bases around those rivers and consolidate their limited gains. Also in eastern Britain, these various territories and chiefdoms that had been set up by Vikings consolidated into a sort of loose confederation called the Danelaw, which had fairly clear and stabilized borders. And it seems over the course of the 900s, there was at least a limited period of stabilization as far as relations between European kingdoms and the Vikings. Most Viking attacks were suppressed. The remaining raiders were brought under royal control and authority in places like Brittany and Frisia. The payments of Danegeld, or sort of forced tribute, slowed down and became infrequent in Britain and totally stopped on the mainland of the continent. In England, the Viking strongholds, or so-called burras, developed into towns. There was some degree of prosperity, such as at Viking-occupied York, and also at the newer town of Lincoln in East Anglia. These Norse towns were especially centers of the metalworking trade. Also, there was new artistic and cultural production, like skaldic poetry, being composed in Norse and performed in the halls of these rulers in the Danelaw. There was some degree of integration between Norse and Anglo-Saxons, seen, for instance, in place names, such as important roads and streets, having the Norse suffix gate, meaning street, added onto them. Also, many Norse words were adopted into English, just as Norse words made their way into Slavic languages. Likewise, in English, we have egg, window, and knife, which come from Norse. And knife probably reflects, again, the great importance of Norse metalworking in Britain. In the Danelaw, the church was protected and flourished, with a major center, especially at York, which became sort of the ecclesiastical capital of northern England. And this was even though most of the kings in the Danelaw were pagan. And hundreds of stone crosses were erected around England, especially in the Danelaw, which show hybrid artistic styles of Norse and Anglo-Saxon, and depicting a variety of different themes and scenes from both Norse mythology and Christianity. By the 970s, it seemed as if probably a permanent coexistence and integration would happen in Britain. But this may have been largely because the Scandinavian homelands were prospering, with a lot of silver coming in from the east, from the Islamic Caliphate. And when this flow of silver was again cut off in the 980s, it seems that the raids from Scandinavia restarted. They escalated drastically in the 990s, and some coordinated forces coming from, especially from Denmark, attempted to conquer England. For this reason, it seems, or for some unclear reason, Ethelred ordered the killing of all the Danes in England in 1002, which was an impossible order, but it did reopen then hostilities between Danes and English. Ultimately, the Dane law ended up being reintegrated into England over the years after 1000 because the Norse rulers, who dreamed of taking control of England, converted to Christianity, and because they were Christian, they could make a credible claim to rulership over all of England. And specifically, Svein Forkbeard launched a massive fleet in the year 1013, which crossed the North Sea, made its landing in southern England, 
gathered support, mainly from the Danelaw. But Svein Forkbeard died before he was able to capture London. His son Knut then took up the claim after him, won a power struggle, and was proclaimed King of England in 1016, and he ruled for 19 years. Now, meanwhile, one can see a similar process of stabilization happening in northern France. And the main Norse power base was, of course, around the mouth of the Seine on the northwestern shore. In the year 911, according to chronicles, King Charles the Simple of France made a deal with the Viking chieftain Rollo. So Rollo was clearly a Norse chieftain, but of uncertain origin, possibly Norwegian, possibly Danish. But this deal granted to Rollo control of the town of Rouen, a major town on the lower Seine close to the seashore. And in return, Rollo would take baptism and he would fight off other Vikings and defend this vulnerable flank of the kingdom. So at first, this little Viking domain ruled by Rollo was just a county. And Rollo and his son named William Longsword were referred to as Counts of Rouen. They ruled as regional chieftain warlords, much like you would find in Scandinavia, but they actively embraced and supported the Christian church. This county then became a center for resettlement of Norse, and migrants came in from various countries in Scandinavia and also from Britain. And so their power expanded gradually westward until it became really a regional power. In the terminology of the time, they were upgraded to a duchy. So their leaders were now not simply counts of Rouen, they were called dukes, dukes of the Northmen, or eventually after 1006, they were called dukes of Normandy. So that became the name of this sort of Norse autonomous realm in northern France. And of course, in later years, Normandy would be enormously historically impactful because Normans would go out to conquer southern Italy and then in 1066, England. And the duchy remained really de facto independent and functioned as practically an international power until it was subdued and taken under the control of the French crown in 1204. So you have these different Norse-derived commonwealths appearing in Eastern Europe with the Rus, in France, specifically in Normandy, in Britain with the Danelaw. And then a bit later in the late 900s, certain German kingdoms began to grow stronger. The new Ottonian dynasty came to the throne in Germany in 962. This was a new dynasty not descended from Charlemagne. It concentrated its growing power, brought various German chiefdoms under their control in this new confederation, which they called the Holy Roman Empire. And this new resurgence of German power was then able to more effectively fend off the Danes and eventually go on offensive. Hence, Danish raiding diminished again, and the, the Danes had to put more energy into unifying and fortifying their own home country. So this then, it seems, was a, an important turning point in ending this era of raiding, at least on the continental homeland and on England. And archaeological evidence shows that Viking colonists on the continent, in these places like Normandy, assimilated fairly quickly. There are not a lot of distinctively Viking burials or weapons or religious objects to be found, only a dozen or so swords that have been excavated from rivers. There is one large 
Viking burial on an island in Brittany in northwestern France, which shows a mixture of grave goods, some in the French style and some Norse. And there are no Norse place names to be found anywhere on the continent outside of Normandy, where there are many. One example is the town of Tocqueville, as in the name of the philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville. And that simply means the town of Toka, which is a common Norse first name. So you can see that deep Norse imprint imprint in Normandy. You also see many Norse place names around eastern and northern England in what had been the Danelaw. But beyond that, it seems that the Norse were pretty quickly absorbed into this larger European Christian civilization. As for their political impact, it led to some abandonments, withdrawal from settlements on the coasts, the breakdown of church organization in some places, and a degree of fragmentation and localization. As far as that, there's a sort of chicken and egg problem. So the Vikings, it seems, targeted places that were already in breakdown and where there was a lack of centralized coordinated defense. And so the Viking raids can be seen in that way as part of a a vicious cycle. Kingdoms were losing cohesion organization. The Vikings would then further fuel that breakdown. But once those Viking raids stopped, after about 1,000, it seems that Christian civilization on the mainland and also in England basically moved on, and the Norse ceased to be a source of danger or disruption. But even as this transition was happening in the 900s and the 1,000s, other Norsemen, it seems, were embarking on a new kind of voyage— voyages of exploration and colonization in more remote and little-known lands beyond England. And in these voyages, the primary enticement was more open grazing land rather than gold and silver. And this began arguably with islands in the North Sea, which had been first inhabited by Celtic peoples, whether Britannic or Gaelic Celts, but were thinly populated and were not known for wealth. The first place where this sort of new voyaging and colonization began was probably the Shetland Islands, an archipelago of rocky islands in the North Sea, north of Britain, which are only about 24 hours sail away from Norway. And the Shetlands were probably first used as camping and stopover sites for raids on Scotland and Ireland in the early 800s. There is little archaeological evidence about exactly how they were first colonized, but a Viking boat burial has been found on the island of Fetlar in the Shetlands, which was excavated by the archaeologists with the TV show Time Team in 2003. And this boat burial is located right near a village and a pre-Viking cemetery with stone gravestones with crosses. And this suggests that the earlier inhabitants that were there before the arrival of Vikings were probably Christian, and the Vikings took village sites from them and reused them. Probably shortly after the Shetlands then came the Orkneys. So in the Orkney Islands, which are just short ways southward, closer to the mainland of Britain, villages and farm sites were forcibly seized by Vikings. Some Norse farms have been found on these islands, as well as bases for fishing. And it seems that the Orkneys soon became a base for a Norse earldom in the late 900s. So according to later sagas, the first Norse leader of this Viking colony was a Norwegian jarl 
who was granted sovereignty over the islands by King Harald Fairhair of Norway. And they also claim that he was a close relative of Rollo of Normandy. And these claims are dubious. It's common, it seems, for the sagas to relate all events back to a small handful of famous people, whether Ragnar Lothbrok or King Harald Fairhair of Norway, and they like to link people up and say that they were all related. And so these claims are dubious, but it does seem from archaeology and from linguistics that the local people of the Orkneys were probably subjugated by these Norse attackers, but they were not wiped out. And there's also evidence of intermixing of the populations, such as Norse chiefs in the Orkneys having sons and giving them Celtic names. Then from the Orkneys, some of these early Viking raiders and colonizers moved on to the Hebrides, the islands dispersed along the western coast of Scotland. And there's more evidence of seizures of land, villages, and farmsteads from Gaelic settlers. And this archipelago also then became a Norse confederation led by a so-called Lord of the Isles. From there, they went on and colonized the Isle of Man in the Irish Sea and used it as a base for travel and trade among the British Isles. And the Norse colonizers there, rather than having a lord or jarl, instead they created a commonwealth led by a council that met at a site called Thunwald. So, you know, derived from the same word thing for a gathering or council. Some Norse, it seems, from the Hebrides and the Isle of Man also colonized to some degree on the mainland of Scotland along the northern and western coasts, especially in Caithness in the far north. And these colonists can be identified by their distinctive Norse grave goods, and they did include women. There are women's graves with oval brooches that indicate whole families moving into these colonies. So there may have been some intention again, to transplant and cultivate a Norse society in this land. But most of these Scottish mainland colonies were ephemeral. They didn't last long or gain much power. But on the islands, the situation is different. There is a deep Norse imprint in the Orkneys and the Shetlands and the Isle of Man. Politically, the Isle of Man was formerly part of Norway until the 1200s, and the Orkneys and the Shetlands remained a Norse territory until the 1460s. The place names on the Orkneys and the Shetlands are basically all Norse. For instance, the capital of the Shetlands is at Lervik, with that ending of the name coming from the Norse vik for bay or inlet. And in the Shetlands, the main local language that formed was called Norn, and it is mainly derived from Old Norse, and it continued to be the main local language of the Shetlands up until modern times. Now, lastly, some exploring and raiding and colonizing voyages went all the way to Ireland. So initially, it seems some raiders reached Ireland in the early 800s. By 820, they had circled all the way around the island, and in 832, raiders repeatedly plundered the largest abbey in Ireland at Armagh. These Vikings, of course, found Ireland already fairly densely inhabited, unlike the Shetlands or the Orkneys. It was already inhabited, but it was divided among various feuding local chieftains. And so many of these Vikings, rather than simply raiding, they served as amphibious mercenary fighters, paid to fight in these intra-Irish wars. And according to the Irish annals, which describe the events of the early 800s, the Irish annals record 26 Viking attacks, 
in the early 800s, but 87 raids and attacks between feuding Irish states. So although the Viking attacks were surely destructive and they were a problem, they really ended up being subsumed into this internecine fighting. In the 840s, a large Norse fleet began overwintering in Ireland and establishing coastal bases. So again, the same pattern where around the same time, the 840s, that Vikings in France, England, Eastern Europe are all thinking more about uh, colonizing the same transition, it seems, begins in Ireland. In 841, Norsemen found an outpost on the Irish Sea, which then becomes the town of Dublin, and they hold some territory around Dublin and become basically one of the feuding Irish statelets of that era. But they were eventually ousted by other Irish powers in 902. Not long after that, another wave of Viking raids on Ireland began in 914. More outposts were created. Dublin was refounded and recolonized in 917. The Norse kings of Dublin then tried to use this base to their advantage and try to assert power over the entire island. But the Irish responded with improved fortifications. They switched over to building in stone in order to not be vulnerable to Viking raids and arson. An Irish coalition formed against the Norse, and they defeated the Norsemen in 980, led by the King of Meath. Thereafter, the Norse in Dublin were a subject people paying tribute to the Celtic Irish. The Norse, it seems, like in other lands, they soon integrated, converted to Christianity, intermarried with the local Celtic people. Dublin and the surrounding area became a bilingual society with many hybrid place names and double inscriptions inscribed in both Irish and Norse. The house designs and artistic styles also show a blending of Norse and local Celtic. And Dublin flourished really as a center of trade, managing traffic around the Irish Sea and among the British Isles. They would import luxuries like silk and wine from the continent and the east, while exporting hides, textiles, and especially slaves. So Ireland again became a source of captives fed into a Norse-managed slave trade, a lot like the Slavic and Baltic peoples in Eastern Europe. Now lastly, the last wave of Viking expansion that we have to consider is the colonization, in many cases discovery, and colonization of previously uninhabited islands in the North Atlantic. So the first land that we know of that Norsemen encountered that was very likely empty and uninhabited by humans when the Norse reached it was the Faroe Islands, which are another rocky archipelago further to the west in the North Atlantic, basically between Britain and Iceland. And landings on the Faroe Islands probably started in the mid-800s. The Vikings reportedly found sheep already living there on the islands. So there is some evidence that some small numbers of Irish anchorite monks had already landed and lived on the Faroe Islands, but probably had already died out by the 800s. So Norse settlement started there probably around 850 or so. It was found to be a favorable terrain for raising animals and also for fishing. The colonists were mostly Norwegians, with some of them also being migrants resettling from Ireland and Scotland. And the population of the Faroes remained small. They are small islands with a difficult climate. 
but they became an important stopover point then for travel further to the west between Scandinavia, the British Isles, and new lands farther west. Most of all, of course, Iceland. So the Norse colonization of Iceland may have started roughly around the same time, in the mid-800s. There is evidence of a settlement on the eastern coast of Iceland facing towards the rest of Europe that might date back to about 800, which would put it a lot earlier than scholars had long thought, but it's uncertain. The major migration into Iceland really started around the year 870, and the settlers went mainly to the far western coast in order to hunt walrus for their tusks. According to sagas, and of course most sagas were composed in Iceland, according to Icelandic sagas, this migration to this newly discovered land was led by high-ranking chiefly families from Norway who left for political reasons. And again, there may be some truth to this. The major migration reportedly continued until about 930, when most of the rich usable land was now inhabited, and when those who had colonized the island now had to somehow cooperate and coexist. And so a gathering, a regular gathering called the Althing was formed, which began meeting every summer for two weeks in a valley on the southern coast called the Thingvellir. They also, it seems, formed a regular law code for the island, which for some unknown reason was called the Grey Goose. Now, according to genetics and linguistic studies, it seems that the early colonists on Iceland were largely Norwegian, so that is what the sagas claim, and that seems to be mainly true. But also many others came from other parts of Scandinavia, especially Gotland in Sweden, also many Sami from far northern Scandinavia, and some smaller numbers also of Saxons and Franks from the mainland of Europe. It seems that the women who settled in Iceland were especially mixed, with a lot of them being Irish and Scottish. And that is probably largely because many of them were captives, taken forcibly from the areas that Vikings had been colonizing and raiding in Scotland and Ireland. The settlers, it seems, went all over the island and began farms, but many northern settlements were eventually abandoned, maybe because the environment was just found to be too harsh and people relocated southward. They concentrated on raising sheep and other animals and also cultivation of some cold-hardy crops and vegetables, as well as fishing and gathering of wild plants, including roots and berries. The conditions, it seems, were relatively rough and primitive as compared to what you might see in Denmark or Sweden. But there was more freedom, open spaces through which to migrate and explore and exploit. And eventually there was great opportunity for trade. And major exports of Iceland included wool, falcons, walrus tusks, and also, again, art and culture. It produced Iceland produced many of the great skaldic poets that would then travel and be employed in Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. So the pharaohs in Iceland saw permanent, lasting Norse colonial societies. Both of them accepted Christianity beginning around 1000. Also, the Faroe Islands accepted Norwegian rule and overlordship in the 1000s. Iceland held out for longer, but eventually agreed to accept Norwegian rule in 1200. Now, the f colonization of the pharaohs and of Iceland spurred on then 
a new kind of voyaging, and the focus now was no longer on warships for raiding, but rather on bigger, wider cargo ships that could endure long ocean voyages, carrying massive amounts of supplies as well as whole families, livestock, and their slaves in order to find and colonize unknown lands. So there was a real transformation by the late 900s, in time then for the discovery and colonization of Greenland. So many stories about the colonization of Greenland are contained in the sagas, and they differ in many respects. They're not consistent. But the sagas do agree on some basic points, which may be factual. So according to these stories, Greenland was first reached by accident at some time in the 900s when a ship went far off course. This is not an uncommon way for new lands to be discovered. The landmass was then colonized by an exploratory corps led by a chieftain called Eric the Red, who set out from northwestern Iceland. In 985, Eric the Red led a colonizing expedition of 25 ships, 14 of which successfully reached Greenland. Most of these colonists then settled in valleys and plains clustered around the fjords on the southwestern coast of Greenland, which in terms of terrain and environment and climate is remarkably similar to Norway. As for the beliefs and customs of these colonists, their religion is very mysterious, and it seems that it was already changing by the time they migrated to Greenland. The only sign of pagan religion that's been found in Greenland is a single amulet in the shape of Thor's hammer, like the ones that one would find all over Scandinavia. As for Christianity, it seems that Christian inroads into Greenland began very early, and a church built out of earth has been found near the main Viking settlement with a churchyard with over 100 burials. So at least some significant portion of the settlers in that area embraced Christianity pretty early on. It's unclear whether some of the original settlers in that initial voyage under Eric the Red were already Christian, or if it came and was introduced a little later from Norway or Iceland. The sagas claim that Eric the Red himself was a pagan while his own wife was a Christian. And again, that might be factual, or it might be a sort of symbolic story that developed in order to encapsulate the coexistence and the tension between these two belief systems. As for the trade of Greenland, they had to import timber, there were no forests on that landmass, as well as grain and iron from other lands. But they were able to get those imported goods in return for certain important exports, like falcons, walrus, and narwhal tusks, which are those long, twisted tusks, almost like unicorn horns, that come from a sea mammal, the narwhal. Also bear and fox hides, whale bones, and sometimes even prized exotic live specimens, like live polar bears, which would be shipped back to Iceland and Norway. So Greenland had a period of flourishing, it seems 11th and 12th centuries, but then it went into gradual decline, and the, the colony shrunk through the late Middle Ages. We don't know exactly why, maybe because of climatic cooling and advancing glaciers on the landmass. But even if so, it's not clear exactly what became of the colony. Did they simply die out, or was it intentionally abandoned? Maybe were they ousted directly by Inuit people moving south through Greenland? But regardless, 
many centuries later, in 1712, the king of Denmark sent out Christian missionaries to try to make contact with this colony in Greenland and to support the church and the spreading of the gospel. But the missionaries found no Norsemen left there, and instead they missionized to the indigenous Inuit people. Now finally, as many of you probably know, this Norse colony in Greenland also served as the stepping stone towards the final and most mysterious Viking outpost that existed in a land called Vinland, which was most likely part of North America. So sometime shortly after 1000, some unknown unnamed Norse voyager sailed to the west beyond Greenland and sighted another even greener and richer land. A few years later, according to the sagas, Eric the Red's son, named Leif, or Leif Erikson, led a convoy to explore and possibly colonize this land to the southwest. According to the Vinland sagas, they sailed up and down various coasts and scoped out three different land masses, which they called firstly Vinland, or the land of vines, probably representing fertility. Remember, vines and wine were basically used as a byword for fertility. Secondly, Markland, or the land of wood. And thirdly, Heluland, or the land of stone. Now, there's been much debate and back and forth over the years with competing theories about exactly where these three lands really were. But it seems very likely that Vinland was Newfoundland and that the others, Markland and Heluland, which they did not permanently colonize, were somewhere further south, maybe in what's now New Brunswick or Nova Scotia or even as far down as Maine. But regardless of that, the furthest definite indisputable evidence of Viking settlement that's been found in North America is the site of a settlement with large earthen buildings and several Norse artifacts that was discovered at Lons au Meadow, a point in northern Newfoundland. So this archaeological evidence corroborates the claim in the Vinland saga, which says that this expedition under Leif Erikson created a permanent settlement in Vinland. And they found the land reportedly to be a kind of mirror image of Greenland. The set of advantages and disadvantages were sort of opposite, and hence could be seen as complementary to Greenland. The advantages included the fact that there was iron ore, which could be gathered and smelted. There was plenty of timber, extensive forests, and very good fishing waters. The disadvantages were that it was very remote and far from Greenland and Iceland, and that it was inhabited. There were fairly numerous indigenous people whom the Norse in the sagas called Skraelings, or little ugly people. Now, it seems that early on, the Norsemen actually made an attempt to coexist peacefully with these so-called Skraelings. They say that they met with them, made polite gestures as best they could, and made an offering of milk from the dairy cows that they had brought with them from Greenland. This initial meeting seems to have gone reasonably well, but shortly after, the indigenous people reacted with hostility and began to attack and attempt to oust the Norse. Now, we don't know, again, whether this story in the sagas is accurate, but it might be real because the Norse clearly were not aware that only some populations in the world produce enzymes enabling them to digest dairy, particularly the sugar lactose. And most likely, these indigenous people they encountered 
were lactose intolerant. So after they drank this offering of milk, they may have gone home, got violently ill, and figured that they were poisoned. Now, regardless of exactly what happened, it's clear that relations between the Norse colonists and the local people spiraled into hostility and cycles of warfare, and after just a few years, the Norse withdrew from Vinland back to Greenland. So in many ways, one can see the early 1000s as kind of the great culmination of the Viking Age. If one does not measure the power of the Vikings in terms of raiding and loot, but in terms of extent of knowledge, power, and prosperity, the early 1000s were arguably the peak, where you have a Norse colony all the way as far west as North America, and all the way to the east in what's now Ukraine and Russia. And in terms of their importance and involvement in European civilization, this culminates with the expedition under Svein Forkbeard to conquer England. This was an open effort by the leader of what had been a primitive peripheral kingdom to actually seize the throne of one of the major states of Western Europe. And he did so at the head of a massive spectacular fleet. A Flemish monk wrote a description of the events of the life of Emma of Normandy, including this invasion by Spain. And he wrote of the awe-inspiring size and majesty of this Danish fleet. And he described the different chieftains and jarls boarding their different boats. And he described them, quote, On one side, lions molded in gold were to be seen on the ships. On the other, birds on the tops of the masts, indicated by their movements the winds as they blew. Or dragons of various kinds poured fire from their nostrils. Here there were glittering men of solid gold or silver, nearly comparable to live ones. Their bulls with necks raised high and legs outstretched were fashioned leaping and roaring. One might see dolphins molded in electrum and centaurs in the same metal recalling the ancient fable. The royal vessel excelled the others in beauty as much as the king preceded the soldiers in the honor of his proper dignity. Placing their confidence in such a fleet, when the signal was suddenly given, they set out gladly, and as they had been ordered, placed themselves round about the royal vessel with level prows, some in front and some behind, the blue water, smitten by many oars, might be seen foaming far and wide, and the sunlight, cast back in the gleam of metal, spread a double radiance in the air. So by this point, there was really no question as to the power that the Norsemen could exert in European civilization by virtue of their fighting ability and their seafaring. But as I've said before, the Danes nonetheless ultimately lost their grip in England. The local elites eventually engineered a return to the throne of an Anglo-Saxon ruler in the person of Edward the Confessor in 1042. The last attempt to assert a Norse right to the throne of England was by Harold Hardrada with his failed invasion in 1066, where he was defeated and killed at the Battle of Milvian Bridge. And that battle is sometimes seen as the last gasp of the Viking Age. But what really ended the Viking era, as we've been describing it, was the conversion to Christianity. This made Viking raids disadvantageous and eventually politically impossible, and it marked the ultimate integration into the world of trade and diplomacy in Christendom. So lastly, I'll just describe how this process of Christianization happened. Early on in the Viking Age, there were, of course, early exposures to this new religion. 
where Viking raiders and merchants saw churches, religious art, in the places that they visited or sacked. A lot of the treasure that Viking raiders brought back to Scandinavia was in the form of crosses or religious statuary. They sometimes met with Christian rulers and even attended church services, and some of them were impressed by the beautiful buildings and music. So starting off fairly early, at least by the 900s, some Viking chieftains did take baptism. Sometimes it was merely as a diplomatic ploy. It was a requirement for diplomatic relations and peaceable trade. And it was often, it seems, insincere. Some leaders did it multiple times. And they often would then go back to Scandinavia and go right back to their pagan customs. But sometimes it seems there was a more sincere interest in Christianity. Several jarls and kings brought back priests or monks from countries in Europe, especially from England, in order to serve as administrators and treasurers and diplomatic emissaries. So in the 700s, Viking rulers, especially in Denmark, did turn away Christian missionaries, and the idea of royal conversion was rejected. But in the 800s, the tide began to turn. There was a greater degree of acceptance and even encouragement of Christian missionaries and missionizing in Scandinavia. Having mission churches in a town meant that you could host more foreign merchants who would be able to visit and stay for longer and even remain there permanently, facilitating trade. In the 820s, the chieftain Harold Clack briefly ruled as king of Denmark, and he brought with him back from the Frankish Empire a monk named Ansgar, who settled in Jutland and set up a court school for boys. Now, this school collapsed when Harold then fell from power in 827. But just two years later, in 829, a Swedish ruler called Björn invited Ansgar to Birka in Sweden, where he was hosted by a wealthy widow. Together, they set up a small church, and among the converts that they gathered there was the king's own steward. In 831, the church based in the mainland of the continent appointed Ansgar as Bishop of Hamburg, a town in northern Germany. And the idea was that he would then lead a concerted mission to evangelize Scandinavia. But he became distracted with difficulties of running the church within Hamburg. And in 845, Hamburg was raided and sacked by the Danes anyway, and much of the monastery where he was based was destroyed. So Ansgar, after that point, kept traveling north repeatedly into Denmark and Sweden until he died in 865. The mission he set up by that point was really tiny, disorganized, and only intermittent. But it built influence and respect largely through charitable acts, through the ceremonial giving of alms, and through the ransoming and emancipation of slaves. So this was a similar strategy that early missions like St. Columba used in Scotland and in Pictland was forming an alliance with these captive and enslaved peoples by paying for their freedom. In the 900s, many Scandinavian kings began to see more of an advantage in encouraging Christianity. It could serve as a unifying factor bridging local, tribal, and clan animosities in their kingdoms. And it could also gain their kingdom entry and better and more prestige in the wider world of trade and alliances in the Christian world. Now, the first Scandinavian country to actually formally embrace Christianity officially was Denmark. So in Denmark, the first ruler who really tried to unify the realm and create a strong royal regime was called Gorm the Old. He ruled in the mid-900s, and he was not a Christian, 
but he was succeeded then by Harold Bluetooth. Harold quickly entertained the idea of possibly converting to Christianity. In 960, a missionary named Popo went to Harold's court and reportedly performed some miracle, carried a red-hot iron rod in his hands without being burned. And this supposedly then inspired King Harold to put his faith in the Christian God. But for whatever reason, whether that's true or not, he embraced Christianity and he encouraged more missionaries and conversion. He had the first Scandinavian church buildings built, including one at Yelling, which was the traditional site of royal burials. So he's now openly associating the new religion with the crown. He also had his father's remains exhumed out of a massive burial mound at Yelling and reburied in the crypt of the church, in a sense retroactively Christianizing his dynasty. Harold was later overthrown in a rebellion, and when he died, his remains were buried at another church at the town of Roskilde, which then has been the royal burial site for Danish monarchs ever since. Harold was replaced by his son Svein Forkbeard, who carried on the Christianization and unification of the kingdom, and he also now could make a play, plausibly, to claim the rulership of England, and hence he launched that massive invasion in 1013 with the fleet that I described. He gained recognition and support from many parts of England, but died suddenly. The claim was taken up by his younger son Canute. Canute has a cloud of doubt and illegitimacy over him for several reasons. One, Canute is seen as a usurper, having taken the English throne by force. Another is that he's arguably a bigamist. He had abandoned his earlier Danish wife in order to marry Emma of Normandy. So for these reasons, Canute had to go on a campaign to bolster his own legitimacy as ruler of England, and most of all, to win the favor and support of the church. He reportedly lived as a devout Christian. He had all of the churches that had been wrecked and ransacked by Vikings rebuilt and improved. His sister, Estrid, meanwhile, ruled as regent in his place in Denmark, and she had the first stone church built in Scandinavia at Roskilde in 1027. Canute gave large gifts of money and relics to churches and monasteries. There is a rare, very rare portrait of Canute from his own lifetime, which is depicted in a prayer book called Liber Vitae, and it depicts himself and his wife Emma of Normandy giving a large gold cross to the Benedictine New Minster in Winchester. And apparently Canute's campaign was effective. He won support and praise from the church, and you can see his campaign as very reminiscent of Viking rulers distributing gold to their followers in order to maintain favor and loyalty. Canute died in 1035 and was buried at Old Minster in Winchester. And as I said, after a period of power struggle, eventually the throne returned to an Anglo-Saxon ruler. Now, the next Scandinavian kingdom after Denmark to Christianize was Norway. The first Christian king of Norway was Hakon Edelsteinsfostri, who came to the throne in 935, so he was earlier than Harold Bluetooth in Denmark. He had grown up in England and had already been baptized in England before he came to the throne. When he took up rulership, he brought English priests back with him to Norway, and he had churches built along the western coast of Norway. But this Christian foothold didn't extend very far, and it didn't last for very long. 
The king did not carry out any attacks on pagan shrines or pagan worship. He died in 960, and he himself was actually memorialized with a pagan burial and skaldic poetry. And it seems that Christianity didn't take root, and it may have actually died out completely. The second Christian king of Norway was named Olaf Tryggvason, who had a short and tumultuous reign. He also had spent much of his early life fighting and raiding in England, and he had been baptized there. He came to the Norwegian throne in 995, so 35 years after the death of the previous Christian ruler. He started a more aggressive campaign to consolidate royal power, and he also fought aggressively to compel conversion to Christianity, and he had some success in the West and the South. Around the year 1000, he compelled the leaders of Iceland also to accept conversion, and this was reluctantly agreed to by the Althing. But Olaf died in battle just a few years later, and the quest to unify and Christianize the kingdom was taken up about a decade later by the third Christian king, Olaf Haraldsson. So Olaf Haraldsson came to the throne in 1015. He had been baptized in Normandy in France, and he brought with him clerics to Norway. He placed the Archbishop Grimkull in charge of a campaign to convert the people of the country, and Grimkull ordered pagan shrines to be destroyed. Olaf Haraldsson then continued the political and military struggle to unify Norway, but he died in battle at Stiklestad in the far north of Norway in 1030, probably the area where there was the most holdout resistance, both to royal power and Christianity. So after being killed in battle, Olaf was seen as a martyr, and his body was taken to Trondheim, which then gradually became a center of Christian pilgrimage. And he was canonized as St. Olaf and effectively became the patron saint of Christian Norsemen, which makes a lot of sense because he was a warrior. So in addition to being a champion of the Christian faith, he fit in this sort of Norse warrior mold. Now, the last Norse country to convert, it seems, was Sweden, and the least is known about this change in Sweden. There's the least documentation about it. It seems that some of the kings after about 1000 were Christians, beginning with Olaf Skutkunung, who was the king of Guttar and Svear, basically in central Sweden. But the kings in Sweden were the weakest as compared to their peers in Norway or Denmark. There was no real unification of this whole country until centuries later. And it seems that the conversion to Christianity was not driven by the crown, as it was in Denmark and Norway and Iceland. Rather, it seems to have been mainly decided on by local leaders and potentates. And for example, the northernmost runestone that has ever been found was discovered on the island of Froso, within a region called Jamtland in basically north-central Sweden. And this particular runestone from Froso records that the leader of Jamtland was named Gudfast, and that he built a bridge, and he had Jamtland made Christian. And this runestone, it seems, comes from fairly late in the 1000s. So this was probably a very slow piecemeal, region-by-region process of conversion in Sweden. And reportedly, remember according to Adam of Bremen, there was still an active pagan cult making offerings to Norse gods at Uppsala as late as the 1070s. But nonetheless, by about 1100, Christianity took hold 
as the main predominant religion all around Scandinavia. And there were certain changes that one can see in society in this time. So apart from the adoption of new rituals and teachings with the new religion, there was an end to burial with grave goods, which had been one of the great distinguishing markers of Norse civilization. There were new stricter prohibitions about marriage and the family, such as rules against intermarriage within the family. And they were similar to rules in the Western Christian world that were largely aimed at breaking down exclusive tribe and clan loyalties. So these very distinct, often feuding tribes and clans became more interconnected. There was an end to infanticide of unwanted children and an end to human sacrifice. Eventually, the worship of the old gods was banned. But as happened in many places around the world, some offerings to the old gods, as well as to spirits, elves, dwarves, surely carried on, and they were gradually Christianized. So old gods or spirits could be rebranded as Christian saints. And by 1100, it seems Scandinavia had become fully part of the Christian world, governed by Christian kingdoms, a lot like one found all throughout Europe in the Middle Ages. So this more or less is how the Viking Age closes, not with a dramatic defeat, but with a conversion and incorporation into medieval civilization. So thank you so much for listening, and thank you to my patrons. For any listeners who have not signed up as patrons, I recently posted a poll on Patreon asking about possible topics for my first video lecture, which I hope to produce soon together with my new producer, Dan Rogers. So if you have not signed up, please go sign up on Patreon. I'll post the link in the description and you'll be able to vote in that poll. And lastly, as I said, these lectures are brought to you by the letter C. So I will now thank by name my current active patrons that begin with the letter C. Caleb Forrester, Callum Aldis, Carl Biagetti, Carol Schriefter, Caroline, Carrie Feibel, Catherine Gray, Kathy Jo Henderson, Kiara O'Brien, Charles McLaughlin, Chloe Vaughn, Chris Ritchie, Chris Roberts, Chris Swinford, Christine Pacheco, Christopher Butler, Colin Gorey, Colson Lynn, and Connor Joseph. Thank you.